Well, I invite you now to open your Bibles with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And we'll be looking at verses 6 through 10. And although this is not specifically a Thanksgiving message, there is tremendous things to give thanks for from this passage. So we'll be looking at uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And I'll begin reading in verse... um, I'm going to go ahead and start in verse 3. Just to remind you of the context leading up to our passage this morning. So, Thy Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And so the Lord has given us His Word to guide and direct and bless us today here in this room. So please uh, give attention to the reading of God's Word. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. For after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels and flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the Gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. And may God bless the reading of His Word. Well, the church at Thessalonica had been going through tremendous persecutions and afflictions indicated in verse 4. They were persevering in faith by the grace of God. Their love was growing. But whenever you're going through a time of persecution and affliction, it's, it's easy for our faith to grow weak, to get worn down. And so the Apostle Paul is now going to encourage them to continue to persevere in faith in the midst of their persecutions. And basically, he's going to give them two reasons for why they should persevere in faith. The first one is that God will give them relief at a day coming when Christ comes back. And the second reason is because God will afflict with punishment, those who are afflicting them. And those are the two reasons 
for which they should give thanks to God for, and it should help strengthen their resolve to persevere in faith in times of persecution and affliction. You know, we live in a world that's full of injustice, don't we? It's part of the fallout of living in a sin-cursed world. We see it on the international scene when one country or people invade another. We see it in our own government. We see injustice in the corporations that dominate life in the world, it seems. We see it in our jobs. We see it in the people that we work with. We see injustice all around us in the world. It's not right. It's not just. But it's all over the place. Unjust afflictions occur and there seems to be no remedy. The wicked seem to prosper in the triumph. And believers are suppressed and abused and It seems like this is oftentimes just the nature of the world in which we live. In Psalm 73, Asaph, who wrote that particular psalm, started meditating on these very ideas. Why is it that the world in which we live, the wicked seem to have all the power? They seem to be the ones in control. They seem to be the prosperous, the wealthy, the healthy And yet the saints of God are oftentimes trampled down. And he said as he pondered this, he was vexed of his soul. He was troubled deeply. God, why do you allow all of this injustice in your world? Is it even good for me to worship you if you're going to allow all of this wickedness and injustice to take place in your world Is it worth serving you and living for you? And he says in Psalm 73, verse 16, that when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely you have set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. And who's he talking about? All the people that are bringing about the injustice in the world in which we live. And he was troubled and he was vexed until he entered the sanctuary of God. And they were probably reading the Word of God that foretold that one day God would come and He would judge all of the wicked creating all the injustice in the world in which we live. And he said, Ah, now that I know their end, I can understand the purpose of God and persevere in faith as long as it takes until God comes and brings righteous justice upon the wicked. That is really kind of the mindset of the Apostle Paul in the passage in which we're looking at uh, together this morning. It's interesting that as we also wait for that day when the Lord will bring justice, in the meantime, what should be our attitude towards the wicked, to the oppressors? Well, Jesus tells us to love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. 
and in so doing you'll heap burning coals upon his head. Overcome evil with good and do not think that you can take your own revenge. Because as the Lord quotes, as Paul quotes in Romans 12, God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. You wait for the Lord. You don't go out and take your own personal revenge, but you wait for the Lord. We want those people saved. We want them to repent. We want them to come to faith in Christ and be delivered from all of their evil. And so just like we had to come to Christ to be forgiven of all of our wretched sin, we pray for their salvation. But for those who refuse to repent and believe in Christ, their day of judgment is coming. And there's a sense of peace and harmony that the believer can have in knowing their end. And that's what Paul is going to speak about in the passage. When the Lord Jesus comes back, the saints will get their relief and the unbelievers will get their retribution from the Lord. So let's begin to look at verse 6. Paul says, For after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So now the Apostle Paul is drawing attention to the fact that one day, even though church, you're being afflicted, you're being persecuted, it's only right and just for God to come and afflict those who are afflicting you. And what this establishes is the very character of God that our God is a just, righteous God. Psalm 89 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Psalm 37 says, The Lord loves justice. God cannot be anything but just. It's woven into His very infinite character and nature. And so he tells the Philippians, or excuse me, the Thessalonians who are being persecuted by the unbelievers that it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So, what we see is that the Apostle Paul is spelling out this aspect of future judgment. He's going to develop more in verses 7 through 9. But again, it's just a part of God's righteousness that He will condemn those who are condemning the church. Condemning the saints. However, before He develops that idea of judgment further, in verse 7, He gives them a second idea to encourage their faith. That when the Lord comes to deal out uh, affliction, He will also give to you who are afflicted relief and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire. So there's a future time when the Lord will come back and He will afflict those who are afflicting you, but He'll give you relief. He'll give the church relief. This relief word that Paul uses is a very interesting word for any of y'all who have ever been engaged in archery. You know what it's like to pull back that bowstring and that string is tied and taut and straining and then it's released. 
And suddenly all the pressure is gone. All the tension is released. And the bowstring is relaxed. And that's the idea of this Word. When Christ comes back, the church will get relief. You will get rest from all of the tension and all the hostility and all the straining and strife and animosity that we have to live in the midst of in this world. All of that will be taken away. And Christ will give relief to His church. All of their tribulations, all of their sufferings will end. And these are assuming these saints are alive when Christ comes back. But all their earthly tribulations, all of their trials, all of that will be totally brought to an end forever. Just think about it. All of your trials and troubles will all end on that day and will enter into the total enjoyment of God's everlasting peace. There's relief. There's rest that awaits God's people when the Lord comes back. What's interesting in verse 7, notice what Paul says here, that the Lord will give relief to you who are afflicted, that would be the Thessalonians and really all other believers, and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed. So Paul envisions here that he's going to be alive when Jesus Christ comes back. Now Paul does not know when Christ will come back. But he hopes it will be in his lifetime. He never states affirmatively, Christ will come back before I die. He never says that. But oh, how he longs for Christ to come back in his lifetime. How he wants that. And when you read his writings, sometimes Paul thinks that he will die before Christ comes back. And sometimes he thinks he'll be alive when Christ comes back. He does not know, but he certainly hopes he's alive. Just some other interesting verses in 1 Corinthians 15 talking about the rapture in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable so the dead in Christ will be resurrected and then he says and we will be changed referring to those who are alive. We'll, be, we'll just be totally glorified and caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So here he thinks he's going to be alive. We'll be changed. The dead will be resurrected, but we'll be changed. But then earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. And there he includes himself in, as being in the resurrection, like he's going to die first. Now it could be an editorial we, but he could very well just be thinking that maybe he'll die and be raised up with Christ when he comes back. He says the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. So sometimes He thinks He's going to be alive. Sometimes He thinks He'll, he'll be dead and need to be resurrected. In 2 Corinthians, this is interesting, chapter 5, He says, For indeed, while we are in this tent, referring to His physical earthly body, we groan, being burdened because we don't want to be unclothed, but to be clothed. In other words, he doesn't want to die and have his soul unclothed without his physical body. He said, we don't want to be unclothed. They want to be alive. He wants to be alive when Christ comes back, in other words. 
so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. But then notice what he says in verse 8 of the same chapter. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body, to die, and to be at home with the Lord. Because when I die, the believer's souls immediately go into the presence of the Lord. So he says, really, we prefer that too. So on one hand, they don't want, he doesn't want to die. On the other hand, he wants to die so his soul can be with the Lord. So basically, you see his heart. He doesn't know when the Lord's coming back. But his attitude is in verse 9. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. Whether we die before He comes back or whether we're alive when He comes back. I just want to please the Lord Jesus Christ. So he doesn't know when, but he sure hopes that it will be in his lifetime. So that's why he says that when the Lord comes back, He'll give relief to you who are afflicted That'd be the church going through tribulation. They get their relief when Christ comes back. And so will we, says Paul, assuming that he'll be alive. So it's a very interesting uh, insight into Paul's longing uh, in, in reference to the second coming of the Lord. Now look at the timing of this. When, when the church gets its relief and when their enemies get their affliction. Notice he says again in verse 7 that this takes place when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels and flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God. So that's when the church gets its relief. That's when the unbelievers get their punishment. It's when Christ comes back to punish the wicked. That's when the saints get their relief. Now, if you're like me, and I was raised up in a dispensational background and believed that the rapture would take place seven years before the second coming, uh, that's not what Paul is saying. The saints get their relief when Christ comes back to punish the unbelievers. That's the second coming. That's when the church gets its relief. That's when the church gets raptured. That's when all their tribulation and all their persecution comes to an end. When Christ comes back to punish the unbelievers. It happens at the second coming. Not, uh, not a, uh, another coming seven years before that time. So Paul is quite clear that the church is going to experience persecution. And this is the church on earth experiencing persecution and affliction until Christ comes back to punish the unbelievers. Second coming. The church will go through the tribulation. Paul seems to be pretty clear about that in this particular passage. Notice he says, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven. It's an interesting word, revealed. Uh, sometimes Paul uses another word, coming, parousia, for the second coming. Here he's using that he'll be revealed from heaven at the second coming. And what's interesting about this particular word is it focuses on the visual presence of Christ. He'll be revealed. It's kind of the idea if you've ever gone to a museum. I haven't, but I've, 
I've seen it where there's a great big huge statue that someone has worked on for a long, long time and it's covered with a great big old sheet. Nobody knows what it looks like. They've never seen it before. But on that one day, it's time for it to be revealed. And they come and they jerk that big uh, sheet off of the statue and suddenly you see what the statue's all about. That's the kind of idea of Christ being revealed. He's hidden now. He's invisible. We don't see Him. But when He comes back, suddenly, visually, He'll be revealed to our eyes. And in fact, Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 says, Behold, He's coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him. That's when He'll be revealed. So when Christ is revealed, then He will rapture and give relief to His saints being persecuted on earth, and then He'll judge those who afflicted Him. Those are the two events that will take place in conjunction with the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now notice He says He will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. So when Christ comes back, He's going to come with all of these incredibly powerful, majestic creatures we know as angels. And they have a very important function at the second coming. They will be very active and they'll be very, very busy. One of the things that they will do, Jesus has told us in Matthew chapter 24, that immediately after the tribulation of those days, so this is post-trib, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet, and what will they do? They will gather together His elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So the angels will be actively somehow participating in the rapture and gathering of the saints to to the Lord Jesus. Somehow they'll be involved in that. But they're going to do something else as well. And Jesus tells us this in Matthew 13. He says, the Son of Man will send forth His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So not only do the angels go out and gather God's people and gather them to the Lord, they gather up all the unbelievers, all the wicked and they and bring them into the presence of the Lord for their judgment. So these angels are pretty incredible creatures and they are extremely busy on the day that Jesus comes back. Now notice it says that uh, he'll be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. The flaming fire doesn't refer to the angels, it's a reference to Christ. He'll come with His angels, but He will come in flaming fire. And this expression of flaming fire, fire is oftentimes used in the Bible as as a picture of the holiness of God in judgment. For example, just one passage in Isaiah. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and with His chariots like the whirlwind to render His anger with fury 
and is rebuked with flames of fire, for the Lord will execute judgment by fire. So this is the idea that when He comes, He's not only going to give relief to His to the church, He's also going to bring judgment upon the unbelievers. And that's the significance, I think, of the reference to these flaming fire. But look at what else is going to happen. He's dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So this is clearly the second coming. He's dealing out retribution. He's going to give relief and rapture up His people, bring them to Him. He's also going to judge all unbelievers. But He's going to deal out retribution. This word retribution can be translated vengeance. It speaks of judgment and punishment and affliction. And again, the Lord tells us that's why don't go out and carry out your own personal revenge. If the law courts need to get involved to bring about justice, that's fine. Don't go out and carry out your own personal revenge against those who afflict you. Why? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. You trust me. I'll deal with them. So when He comes at His second coming, now He deals out that vengeance and that retribution. Now who does He do that to? Well, those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the Gospel of our Lord Jesus. Some have thought maybe there's two groups involved here. Probably the same group of people described in two different ways. Number one, they don't know God. They have intentionally chosen to reject the knowledge of God in creation or even in the Gospel. They have willfully chosen to reject that knowledge of God. And secondly, they have also obeyed the Gospel. They refuse to submit to the Gospel demand of repentance and faith. And so God, when Christ comes, He will deal out retribution fairly, justly, righteously. No one will get what they don't deserve. Everyone will get exactly what they deserve based upon their works according to to Scripture. But He'll deal out retribution. And then He adds to that, the Apostle Paul adds in verse 9, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. So now they're going to pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Jesus says it's eternal punishment and it's not annihilation. And I'd really like uh, next time to kind of explore that with you because that's a growing popular belief even within evangelicalism today that basically no one goes to hell or if they go to hell for a very short time then God just obliterates them. He annihilates them. I don't think you can support that from Scripture. But we'll look at that, Lord willing, next time. But they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Away from it. That does not imply that they, they're obliterated. They are moved away from the presence. They still exist. They are moved away from the presence of the Lord. What does that mean? 
Well, in a certain sense, God is omnipresent, right? So He's everywhere. He's in heaven. He's in hell. He's everywhere. So in what sense is Paul saying they are moved away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power? They're moved away from His presence in the sense that they have to leave His favor, leave all common grace. They are moved away from the presence of His love, His joy. That's what the saints enjoy in heaven. But they won't experience any of that in that day. This is kind of the idea of what happened to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Because of their sin, what happened to them? Could they stay permanently in the Garden of Eden? No, they were banished. They were expelled. And so to prevent them from ever coming back, the Lord put cherubim to stand guard and a flaming sword to prevent them from ever coming back into the Garden of Eden. That's the idea here. That when He comes to afflict those who afflicted the church, they will pay a terrible price. And they will not only be uh, experience the retribution of Christ, but the penalty of eternal destruction. And they'll be cast away from the presence of the Lord forever. When does this occur? Second coming of Christ. Now what's interesting is that for many people, <clears throat> here I might address uh, those who are premillennial, because as again, I was in that camp for a good while. A premillennialist will think, well, that, that sounds like the great white throne judgment, which it is, because that's when they're cast into hell. And yet that has to occur after a future thousand-year millennial kingdom. So you have the second coming, thousand-year millennial kingdom, and then the great white throne judgment when they're cast into hell. Not according to Paul. Paul says that happens at the second coming. So all of that. That's why the, the church has, has taught this for centuries and centuries, the general resurrection of the dead. Jesus taught this in John 5. All the dead will be raised at the same time and there will be a judgment. The righteous go to heaven. The unbelievers go to hell. So it happens all at the second coming in this context. And I think in terms of a principle of hermeneutics, it's always better to interpret the clear passages uh, or rather to interpret the unclear passages like Revelation by the clear passages like in Thessalonians. So that's something to think about. So to summarize what Paul has said so far is that the church is going through tribulation. They're going through persecution. They're being afflicted. And the Apostle Paul is saying, persevere. Persevere. Endure. Why? Because when Christ comes back, you'll get relief and all those who are persecuting you, they will have to pay according to justice. And so let that motivate you. Let that strengthen you. Let that help you to persevere when life gets tough. And you can apply this not just to persecution trials and afflictions, but all kinds of trials and afflictions ultimately.
And one day, that will all end. And we'll be in the presence of the Lord. But then he comes back to that. The last verse he speaks of when Christ comes back and we get our relief. So now in verse 10, he's going to expand a little bit more on the glory of the relief that we get when Christ comes back. So notice he says again in verse 10, when, so when he comes back to to deal out retribution is the same time he comes back and when he comes back, he will, he will be glorified in his saints on that day. Same time, same event. The wicked get their punishment, but the saints now get relief and glory. Notice again in verse 10. When he comes back to be glorified in his saints on that day, and to be marveled at among all those who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. So now he says, when Christ comes back, he's going to give relief to you who are suffering. He's also going to afflict and punish those who were afflicting you. But also when he comes back, he will be glorified in you. And that's a rich expression for two things that are going to take place. When Christ comes back, He will be glorified in us. There will be, there will be glory for Christ when He comes back. He will be revealed in all of His glory and His majesty. So there's glory for Christ where before He was concealed, but then He'll be revealed. And all the earth will see His glory, His power, his majesty. So he will be glorified as he comes down, and, and he'll be glorified in his saints. We especially will rejoice in the glory of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. But the other meaning is that he will be glorified in his saints in a different way. His glory will be imparted to us, he will share his glory with his fallen creatures who have. Come to faith in Him by His grace. We will be glorified. His glory will be imprinted upon us to the degree that a creature can receive the glory of Christ. But we will be glorified at that time. Of course, that happens at the rapture. If For those who are dead, that happens when they're resurrected. But we are glorified. So when Christ comes in His glory, He is glorified. But He also passes on some of His glory to all of His children so that we share in His glory. We are glorified in His presence. This is what Paul said to the Philippian church. Remember this. For our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice verse 21, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. See, Christ comes and reveals His glory for all to see but He also imprints and shares and transforms us by His glory so that we're glorified as well. John says the same things. We know that if He should appear, we shall be like Him. 
because we shall see Him just as He is. And so when the Lord Jesus comes back, He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day. That phrase, on that day, which the translators stick here in the verse, actually comes at the very end of the verse. It's kind of the crescendo. That all this glory, all this manifestation, all of our marveling in Christ is on the last day. And he puts it at the end of the verse for emphasis. Wait for that day to come. That's a day that only the Lord knows. We don't know when He will actually come back. But when He does, we will, be, we will perfectly reflect His image. And Christ will be full of joy as He sees His image in us. And so will the angels as they behold the image of Christ perfected in us. And then He adds that Christ will be marveled at among all those who have believed. We will marvel at Christ when He comes back. This word marvel is used of whenever you're in the presence of something supernatural. This is a word used for Moses at the side of the burning bush that was on fire, but it never was consumed. It's a supernatural thing. He marveled at it. It's also used of the Jews in the book of Acts when Peter and John healed that lame man Remember at the temple? And he had been lame from, from his birth. And they came and healed this guy. And what did the, the lame man do? He stood up and he was leaping and walking and rejoicing. They marveled at that because they saw something supernatural. And now the same word is used of the, of the greatest marveling of all marveling. And that is when Christ comes back in His glory and you and I, all believers in Jesus Christ, will just be dumbfounded. We will marvel in glory in Christ as He appears at His second coming. It's an amazing thing that we will see on that day. We shall marvel and wonder and worship and admire with holy awe and utter amazement at the glory of the Lamb of God. And we will gaze upon Him and we'll be astounded at a level we cannot experience now. We will be astounded with the depth of His love for us. We will see the nail imprints in His hands, the sign of the the torment and the pain and the suffering He endured to save us from our sins. We'll see that and recognize it at a level we could never now. And we will marvel. Our hearts and minds will be lifted up with awe and joy and celebration that the Lamb of God our Savior has now come back for us. And we will marvel at His presence. And He will be marveled at among all those who have believed. We will marvel not only at His appearance, we will marvel at the praises of the angels and all the saints that will render praise to Christ. We will marvel at His own voice as He speaks such tender words of love and compassion to all of His children. How He confesses our name before the Father and His angels. And we will be stunned, absolutely stunned, that a hell-deserving sinner 
has become the recipient of such grace from God. We will marvel at the Lamb. We will praise the Lamb on that day. Paul says, "...things which eye has not seen, nor ear has heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him." And when that day is revealed, all we can do is to marvel. You read in Revelation 5 of all of the glorious creatures in heaven, And it says, And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing." And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. We will marvel at Christ when He comes back. And those who will do the marveling are those who have done the believing where he says it will take place among all those who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. See, all of this future glory, all the future blessings belongs to you and me who by the grace of God have believed. That's it. This is sola fide. This is salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, by the grace of God alone, all to the glory of God alone. This is the whole thing. We have believed by the grace of God and when we believe, God has justified us. And of course, if your faith is real, if it's alive, there'll be evidence. That's why Jesus says you'll know them by your fruit. The fruit doesn't save. It's just evidence that your faith that does save is real. That's why the reformers could say we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. There's evidence to that. So when Christ comes back, He will give relief to the saints. He'll give glory to the saints. And He will give affliction to all who have refused to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. All believers will receive future glory. Even those who have fallen asleep in Jesus will be resurrected. And we who are alive and remain, whoever that is, they will be raptured. But at that point, they'll get their relief, they'll get their rest, and they'll get glory with all the other saints as well. So again, what's the purpose of this passage? Paul wants to encourage the Thessalonians. Hang in there. Persevere in your faith. You're going through trials. You're going through troubles. You're going through afflictions. And are we not all in one way or another? As I said earlier, there's many other kinds of trials and afflictions besides persecution for our faith. Some of us have experienced very mild forms of that. 
But some of us are hammered by many other kinds of trials and troubles. And sometimes they can wear us down. And sometimes we can become full of anxiety like Asaph had. Well, we don't understand why is it that I have all these problems and the wicked people, it looks like everything's a life full of cherries in their, in their life. Why is that, God? And we can become discouraged. We can become disillusioned. Our faith can wobble. And I think the Apostle Paul would tell us, as he's telling the Thessalonians, hang in there. Persevere. Because every day that you persevere, your trials are growing one day shorter and your glory is growing one day nearer. Persevere. Look to the day of Christ's return. That's our blessed hope. That's the day we look forward to. So like Asaph, sometimes we're troubled, we're vexed. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, he wrote, and then I perceived their end. That surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. And they may seem like they're planted like a tree, that they are stalwarts, that they control the world, but their feet are on slippery places and they are doomed to fall if they do not repent and come to faith in Christ. So what Paul is doing, I think, is similar to what Asaph. It's important for you and I here this morning to know what the end of the wicked is and to know what the end of the saints is going to be. And the more we understand those two things that will take place in the future when Christ comes back, then it can strengthen our hearts with the resolve to live for Christ, trust Christ, live for Him regardless of our circumstances because we know that one day He's coming back. In closing, James, I think, kind of summed it up to the churches that he was writing to when he said, you too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. And what a great word of encouragement for us. A word that we can apply to our own life, our own struggles, our own trials, and find hope and blessing in knowing that when Christ comes back, we get relief, we get glory, and the enemies of God get their just retribution. And all of that to the glory of God. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we do want to thank You again, Lord, for the Word of God. And, and oftentimes we don't think about these important eschatological truths that You've revealed to us in Scripture, but they are a blessed hope for us. They encourage us and remind us that we're just pilgrims in this world. We're aliens. We're passing by. The world hates us. We know that. But Lord, You want us to now, while we're on this earth, to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, to, to be rich in sharing the Gospel with others that by Your grace they may come to know the Lord Jesus and they might be rescued from the wrath to come. 
So Lord, give us wisdom, give us grace that we might be the light of the world, the salt of the earth, until You come. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.